Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Everybody had a great Christmas. I can't believe 2020 is right upon us, but uh, we're going to have a little fun today. We're going to go back and visit one of my favorite shows ever. Starcade 1993 went down on December 27th, right there in Charlotte, North Carolina at the independence arena. And this is, uh, close to an anniversary show, I guess, but I mean, it's not like a round year or anything like that, but I just couldn't wait anymore. I'm such a big fan of this show, specifically the main event and the way the story is told on the pay-per-view. I think it's one of my very favorite Ric Flair matches. And of course it happens in his adopted hometown of Charlotte, North Carolina, 7,000 fans in attendance there. Uh, the newsletters would say there's about a thousand comps there, uh, $65,000 gate. It does a 0.55 buy rate. So 1.35 million in pay-per-view revenue, man, these numbers are going to look a little different when the NWO comes around or they're not. Yeah, they are. But I think we need to put this in perspective. This is still, you know, 1993 WCW was still very, very early in the changeover of management from <clears throat> Previous, I'll just call it previous management. Everybody knows who they were, but this was still really early. And you know, sixty-five thousand dollars doesn't. When we talk about you know gates and revenues, it doesn't really sound like you know a big number. But from a WCW perspective, that was a substantial. Um, that's a su- substantial ticket sales number, because up until this point, WCW would would have a hard time breaking thirty or forty thousand dollars sometimes. So they. You know, to be able to sell 7,000 seats, and yes, you got a 1,000 comps in there, keep in mind those comps are generally going to radio stations right. to help us offset promotion and things like that. It's not like we're giving them away on street corners to people that were walking by. These are and, and everybody does it. Everybody will continue to do it from WWE to AEW to whoever. You know, that's a big part of marketing and promoting your events. So, you know, 7,000 tickets sold in Charlotte says a lot about, you know, the market's respect and love for Ric Flair and the anticipation for this match. I got to tell you, I, um, I really hoped that you would talk about how this gate was pretty good because I want to put in perspective where the numbers were for just a typical show. In December of 1992, one year prior, your average gate was $8,370. In December of 93, your average gate is down 19% to $6,720. So on the surface, when you hear a $65,000 gate, to your point, it doesn't sound like a big number. And then you realize it's 10x our average. Uh, This is a company that is definitely trying to pull the nose up. We're, uh, I don't know, six months away, maybe from signing Hulk Hogan, things are going to change in a major way for the company in 94, but we're going to end with a bang here because this is a good show. I should mention that even though we, we talked about 7,000 here at the arena and maybe not being the biggest house, the average attendance in December of 92 is 930 fans. So if you were a house show in December of 92, 930 fans, that's it. Now, otherwise beyond this show in December of 93, 640 fans 
And I think sometimes fans look back at WCW and they just assume, well, it was always sold out at the United center or whatever. But when you talk about 640 fans, this is like a strong indie in 2019. This is like, you know, a ring of honor or an impact running a spot show somewhere, you know, 640 fans. And, and all of that is going to change very quickly. I'm saying all that to sort of set the stage for, I think a lot of people assume you know, cause there are Bischoff haters out there, believe it or not. And I think some of those, <laughs> some of those people get on the bandwagon of, oh, well, he was just given a blank check and he could blah, blah. Well, that existed beforehand. There, there was no real change of ownership. Yes. There was a management change, but good Lord, 640 tickets, man. Th- this is a long way from what WCW is remembered for. No, it, it is. And. I could go on and on about that, but I'd be patting myself on the back and I try not to do that any more than, than I already do. But I think another thing that, you know, our listeners should think about is they're putting all of this stuff into context and all this information into context is this is also one of the reasons why we ended up going to Disney MGM studios, because if you think selling tickets to a house show was tough or if you think selling tickets to a pay-per-view was tough in 92 and even in 93, selling tickets to a TV taping was even worse and even more difficult because it, 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 everybody knew that, number one, the markets had all been conditioned that you know WCW is going to give the tickets away, so there's no reason to buy them. Uh, number two, you know, television tapings back then, because we were taping two or three shows at a time, they were long, they were drawn out. It just wasn't a great presentation. And this is before pyro. This is before the big staging. This is before a lot of the great things that came along in 94, 95, 96, and so forth. So a television taping in 92, 93 was abysmal in terms of the, the audience that we could draw. And if we drew 600 people to a television taping, half of them were asleep during the match, you know, with a, with a bottle of wine in their lap because they got their tickets for free and there was nowhere else to get out of the cold or rain or the heat and the humidity. So they'd come to an air conditioned or heated arena and watch wrestling for as long as they could. It was a very, very um, difficult environment to produce good television in. So this, again, you know, in context, when people, you know, talk about Disney, because there were a lot of people that criticized that as well, even internally, because of the the challenges that Disney created by having to um, shoot so many episodes in advance in order to take advantage of the cost efficiencies, Um, the, 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 you know, the, the staging itself, it was a smaller, closer, closer environment, similar to center stage, but a little bit more um, antiseptic because a lot of the fans that would come in to watch the event weren't necessarily wrestling fans. They were just there to see something being produced on television. So we, we did lose a little bit in terms of the energy in some cases, but at least the Disney audience was sober. That was that was a really big advantage. Um, and they were there presumably to have a good time as opposed to just getting out of the weather and eating cheap hot dogs. But that was a big reason why we went to Disney MGM Studios is because we just couldn't draw, which I think also speaks a lot to the success of this particular event. And the fact that we sold 7,000 tickets really does say a lot for you know what this event was, the heritage of Starcade, you know the relationship with Ric Flair and 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 Charlotte and and you know all of the above. So anyway, instead of 
add a little sizzle to the sauce there. I'm glad you mentioned, you know, the relationship of Rick and Charlotte and, uh, you know, in more recent years, I don't know, probably going back five or six years, uh, there's been sort of an on again, off again relationship at times with the city of Charlotte. I think he pissed off a lot of Panther fans when he went and gave a pep talk to the 49ers in the middle of a playoff run. And you know, the local shock jocks were really out to get him and things like that. But by and large, can you, can you sort of speak to how over Ric Flair was in the Charlotte market? Because I mean, he really was like, you know, with the possible exception, I guess, of Michael Jordan, he's, he's the biggest celebrity in the state at the, in this era. Has he not? He, he was, and he was so personable and unlike a lot of celebrities who kind of lay low and don't really engage with the local community and don't go out much and aren't seen regularly. Rick was the opposite of that. I mean, he was out and about, he was, you know, in the restaurants, having a great time. He was happy to meet and engage fans. He was happy to interact with people wherever he went. And I'll, you know, I'll tell you one, you know, quick story. Um, when we were in Charlotte, I don't remember what Nitro it was or what the event was, but uh, we were in Charlotte, and I remember after the show, I went, to, you know, we went, we were all going to, you know, meet at a local bar downtown, and you know, celebrate after the show. And I, I you know, I w- walked in, and this was, you know, when Rick and I on camera were having our our storyline, right? So there was some heat between us. Part of it was real that we, tr- you know, that we turned into, you know, uh, a storyline, and. You know, a lot of the people knew about it, right? I walked into this bar and I by myself. And I walked up to the bar. It's pretty crowded after the show. Everybody knew we were going to go there, and uh, this guy comes up to me, standing right next to me. And I could—I didn't make eye contact with him, but I could feel him just staring a hole into me. And uh, finally, I looked over to him. I said, "What do I do? I owe you money, or you know, what, what's the deal here?" And he just, I don't remember what he said, but he just lit into me and was giving me all kinds of a hard time about how I was treating Ric Flair and, you know, what a you know, what a piece of garbage I was. I'll, I'll clean up the language a little bit out of respect for who this person ultimately ended up being. And this guy's going on and on and on, and he's eyeballing me like I'm, I'm thinking, okay, I'm not going to grab this beer quite yet because I may need both hands until I figure out where this, this conversation is going to end up. I'll just leave my beer on the bar. And I'm, you know, half prepared and looking around me to see how much room I have to work. And, and I find out it's Hootie from Hootie and the Bluefish. <laughs> Darius Rucker is his name. Yeah. Darius Rucker, but he was Hootie back then. Sure. And and it was so much. And, you know, we've, we've said, obviously, we, we became friends after that and, you know, reach out and touch each other occasionally throughout the year on Twitter and social media. But. Uh, yeah, this, he would, and you know, I didn't know it. I didn't recognize him, you know, initially. And I'm just, God, why is this guy so pissed off at me? But man, he's, he's a big fan. He is a big fan. He listens to this show. So, uh, shout out to Darius. And if you get a chance, you know, Hootie and the Blowfish are, I guess they're still doing a bit of a reunion tour. I saw him a few months ago in uh, Charlotte and holy cow, they put on a good show. And you guys put on a good show here. We should talk about, you know, just the importance of Starcade for a minute, you know, and you've talked about when you sort of took over, you made, uh, in your opinion, Halloween havoc, like the tent pole event of WCW. And a lot of fans would, would come on board with that. I think 1996 with it being in Vegas was really the first year it felt that way to me. Uh, but Starcade 97, which we talked about you know, in our archives, one of the biggest, most important pay-per-views of all time that felt like the biggest show of the year, but 
prior to you taking over going all the way back to 83 Starcade was like the NWA's version of WrestleMania and we're coming off of the battle bowl pay-per-view here where we would see Vader injure Ric Flair outside the ring on the ramp and causes Flair to be stretchered out. It's going to build more heat for their match here and, and Flair in the main event of a Starcade. just, I mean, it just makes sense. You know, people look at the early WrestleManias and Hulk Hogan was always there. Well, that's true for Flair as well. You know, starting with the first one in 83 against Harley race, he's back with dusty in 84 back with dusty in 85. He's in the main event again in 86 and 87 and 88. You get where we're going with this. Flair was synonymous with Starcade, and that doesn't change with you uh, having the book either. Um, but the original idea here, I think was for this to be the first Starcade without him in a featured spot while he was a part of the company. There is the time when he left and went to the WWF, but here, the idea is it's supposed to be Vader and Sid Vicious. We know there's going to be an incident overseas with Sid and Arn Anderson. Those plans change. Talk to me about how we come together with, well, it's got to be Rick again. Well, you know, the good news for Rick, it was kind of a good news, bad news um, situation, I think, for Rick throughout most of his career in WCW is he, he was always the go-to guy. If plan A doesn't work, you know, plan B will. And while Ric Flair was off in plan A, and for many, many years uh, throughout WCW's uh, existence, Ric Flair was always the plan A guy because he drew money and he drew ratings and everybody knew it. Particularly, you know, if he was if he was in, in a match with the right person and with the right story, which is always the case. But in Rick's case, it was so easy to, to you know, to match Rick up with, whether it be Sting or Ricky Steamboat, or in this case, Vader, on to be Hogan, you, you know, you name it, Ric Flair and insert name here, as long as whoever's name you inserted was reasonably over, uh, you could bet that it was going to be successful. The degree to which it was going to be successful was, you know, was a question, but you knew you were always going to be successful. And I think in Rick's case, you know, being that that strong go-to guy never gave Rick a chance to take a break, really. You know, and, and obviously injuries factored in, you know, throughout his his relationship with WCW. So you're kind of forced to take a break every now and then. But even then, he was doing promos. He was out in front of people. Rick never stepped away uh, from the spotlight, whether it was, you know, still doing promos in an injury or working hurt or whatever, because he was just that strong you know, I hate to call him a utility backup, but when needed, you know, it's like when, when the building's starting to burn and you can't put it out, you know, with the kitchen sink, what do you do? You break the glass, pull the fire alarm, and in comes Ric Flair. And I think that hurt Rick in some respects. And I think this was just another example. While the plan may have been, and keep in mind here, guys, so it, those of you who are listening, guys and gals, I hope, um, I wasn't booking this in 1993 clearly i was there i was a part of the process but um i wasn't booking this so i can't go into a ton of detail other than what conrad just specified in, in terms of the situation with vader and arn and what led up to vader not being available but here is another case where oops plan a is not going to happen let's bring in plan b and sure as shit plan b worked out phenomenally well probably possibly well not even possibly i would venture to say quite likely uh, worked out to be much better than plan a. 
Of course, you meant Sid Vicious. You accidentally said Vader and Arn had a situation. Just to refresh everybody, it was in fact Sid. Sid is no longer with the company at this point. We've talked about that on the show in the archives where, you know, in the, in the falling out of this, Eric has to sort of make a judgment call of, hey, what really happened? And ultimately, since Sid sort of reignited the, the tussle and then goes to Arn's door, Eric makes the decision to part ways with Sid. Sid would pop back up in WCW years later, but that's the end of Sid, at least at this point. Um, and they call on Ric Flair, as you said, sort of, uh, behind the emergency glass breaking case of emergency. Woo. Here comes the nature boy to save the day. And I do agree with you that this show, and it almost feels like it was supposed to be for him with this show happening in Charlotte. It feels a little bit like a no brainer, especially when you've got this monster Vader. Uh, and I guess we should also mention, I don't think people would be talking about Vader and Sid as some all-time classic match. Would you agree? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, that was, again, it was just, it was another match. It was, you know, a high profile match. You know, I think the, the idea of two, you know, big men, clearly Vader being his, what was he? 450, I think around the, uh, around that time, Sid was a monster of a man. And I think the, the idea of, you know, the big man main events and these two powerful uh, beasts going at each other was, you know, going to be a big draw and it, it probably would have been successful to a degree. But again, you put, you know, Ric Flair in Charlotte against Vader. And it was a story there. You know, it's not like it came up completely cold. There was enough of a story there that we could kind of add some color to and some, you know, put some meat on the bone that it actually, to your point, felt like it was supposed to happen. This feels like the last real big hurrah of Ric Flair at Starcade, especially in the main event. We know in 94, it's going to be the Butcher and Hulk Hogan. In 95, they're going to do a World Cup of wrestling. Ric Flair would wind up being in the last match. Uh, taking on Randy Savage uh, to win the world title, but it wasn't main event that everyone uh, knew was going to happen on the way in here. As far as building to a traditional story, you know, traditional main event, this is essentially Flair's last Starcade main event, and uh, quite a story. If you haven't watched this match, you should go out of your way to watch it. Uh, it'll make uh, it'll make for a good way to wind down 2019. Let's talk about some news and notes as we head into the company. Um, as we're marching towards your big pay-per-view Gene Okerlund would go on the WCW hotline and he would call the government prosecutors in the Titan investigation clowns and government henchmen, uh, which Meltzer says seems a wise move given the company he's working for is a sitting duck for the same kind of investigation. He said he'd love to be a character witness for Vince and that Vince was completely innocent of everything that the government had no case whatsoever. And Meltzer would say the last time I remember Gene as a character witness was for Ken Patera and it sure did Patera a lot of good. Of course, the gist here is Eric, you know, you guys are discussing the WWF lawsuit on the WCW hotline and you're having a WCW employee or contracted performer, whatever it may be. So to defend Vince a little bit, this, uh, I'm interested in your feedback here is a, the hotline, not big enough or, or, or not speaking to a big enough audience for it to really matter to you one way or another, or do I have it right that these days, uh, Eric Bischoff would probably abstain from commenting or having anyone in his company comment on stuff like this. You know, I, 
it's hard to say. It's hard to say what the situation was. You know, despite uh, Meltzer's opinion, um, you know, and he's so you know snarky the way he frames things. Like you know, Vince's ego is out of control for not taking himself on television. There may be a, have been some very good reasons for not taking himself on television. That has nothing to do with Vince's ego. I, I don't claim to know Vince McMahon real well, um, but I don't think he's driven as much by ego is he is by success and strategy and it may have been his strategy not to sell it and not to overreact it so i don't think it was an ego driven decision on vince's part first of all to stay on tv secondly and more specifically to your question um today would i you know would i address it head on in a in a controversial way if it was something that we weren't legally involved in yeah i probably would uh, I think it's, especially in today's social media environment, you know, you can't pretend that things aren't going on around you, um, that you, you tend to lose your credibility uh, when you ignore certain situations. Um, so I probably would have confronted it. And one last thing, you know, Dave's comment about, you know, WCW at the time being ripe for the same type of investigation. No, sorry. You know, if you look at the details of, of that trial and the case, uh, that the government was trying to make against <clears throat> Vince McMahon and the WWF. It, it, it had nothing to do with talent's use of steroids. It had to do with one certain individual uh, allegedly and proven not to be found guilty of distributing that product to, the, to his talent. Um, WCW didn't have anything like that and nothing even remotely similar. So once again, I think the way the whole question was framed or the statement was framed, um, was just way off base. And like I said, I probably would confront it and, and address it again, especially in today's social media environment. Let's talk a little bit about Hulk Hogan. We know that Hulk Hogan is going to be named in the lawsuit, uh, as being supplied steroids directly from Vince McMahon and Titan sports between March of 88 to October of 89. At this point, of course, Hulk Hogan is not under contract to WCW, but by late 1993, he's got to at least be on your radar as, Hey, it would be nice to have him and a cool. What if were you keeping up with the lawsuit with regard to Hulk Hogan, uh, at any point during this, this situation? I mean, even though he's not there. He's still on your radar, right? You're still interested. Oh, yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, it was it was big news. It was big news in the wrestling industry. It was big news in mainstream media. So, of course, I was aware of it and I was following it, but I wasn't obsessed with it. I I, I wasn't. Again, we weren't involved. I had no no dog in the hunt, so to speak. So, yeah, I followed it and I was aware of it, but you know, tangentially, you know, I didn't wake up every morning and try to find out what was going on on any particular day in the courthouse. Was there ever conversation that you recall that was something like, Hey, if Vince goes to prison, dot, 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 or did you, do, did you allow yourself to get that far along in your thinking? No, I didn't think again, I didn't think about it that much. You know, obviously that was, uh, something that, you know, probably everybody that was aware of the case, you know, knew could happen, but Again, you know, putting things in context, WCW at that time, back in 1993, was not, not even, there were no discussions about trying to be number one. We were just trying to make a buck. We were just trying to survive. We were just trying to keep Ted happy by getting sufficient and, and stable and consistent enough numbers on TBS 
to justify his expense in WCW. Um, so we weren't, you know, sitting in a room, you know, looking our chops, you know, wondering God, what happens if Vince McMahon goes to jail. Does that mean we can become the number one wrestling organization? That, no. I mean, privately, people may have had those thoughts, but it certainly wasn't a conversation that I had with anybody or a thought, frankly, that I had with anybody or with myself. Let's keep it moving here because we are going to have uh, a little bit of discussion on the WCW side. Meltzer would report two of WCW's most prominent bullseye posters for federal investigations. Davy boy Smith and Sid vicious were both fired vicious who had verbally agreed with WCW officials to a four year, $2.4 million contract just before the October 26 incident in England, where he and Arn Anderson stabbed one another in a fight that got out of control. Technically wasn't fired over the incident with Arn Anderson because of legal reasons, but for what was termed overall volatile behavior. Because of WCW officials apparently letting Vicious slide on steroid tests, there is a very messy can of worms that still has to be dealt with. So any decision being absolute may not wind up being the case in the long run, but for now, Vicious has been fired. A lot to unpack, so we'll just stop right there. That's there's a lot to unpack there because it's like fucking thought soup. I'm not even sure what he just said there, <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not. Yeah, please don't read it again. I don't want to hear it again. But there was a whole lot of snarky, smarmy shit that got thrown out just now, and none of it meant anything. None of it meant a thing. <laughs> you know, again, context. What was the basis for the case in, in in WWF against Vince McMahon? What was that case? That that Vince McMahon and WWF were supplying steroids to the performers. Not that the performers were using steroids, because at that time, the steroids were legal. They weren't illegal. So for Dave to suggest in whatever that thought soup of a comment was or statement was, that, you know, by having you know, Sid Vicious or Davey Boy Smith, who were likely using performance-enhancing drugs. They weren't doing it in our direction, at WCW's direction. We weren't supplying. WCW wasn't supplying anything. There was no connective tissue there between what was going on in the WWF and what was going on in WCW. We let Vicious go for obvious reasons. The incident in October uh, was a very serious one. It could have been much, much more serious. And the legal side of Turner Broadcasting handled it the way they felt was the best way to handle it in, in terms of uh, distancing WCW from Sid Vicious. Um, that's all that it was. There was no, you know, to, to frame all of that within the context of the steroid trial that was going on is just, you know, it's a stretch. Well, let's talk about, you know, the way he was fired because Meltzer says here, it's not directly because of the incident. In fact, it's called volatile behavior and maybe it's tomato, tomato. Do you remember? It is, it is, it is tomato, tomato. And it, it was, look, it's a, it, it's, it's a legal term. It's a term of art. That's why I said that, you know, when, when someone is terminated, especially in a situation as serious as the one that Arn and, and Sid were involved in. You know, Eric Bischoff doesn't get to sit behind his desk and decide, hmm, we're going to let go of Sid Vicious. So what we don't want to say we're firing him. So what should we call it? That's up to the legal 
side of Turner Broadcasting. That was their choice, their decision. They framed that termination in the way that they felt provided them the most protection from any future litigation, either from Sid or anybody else. So let's talk a little bit about the next thing that's discussed here that before the incident, he had a, a verbal agreement for a contract. Do you remember that being the case? I do not remember that being the case. I'm not going to say he didn't. Um, 1993 was a while ago, <laughs> so, uh, it, it's not fresh in my mind. I, if it would have been in 93, I'm not sure how aware or how involved I would have been in those discussions because that just wasn't my area at that time in 93. That didn't really start becoming more of my responsibility in terms of new talent and contracts and things like that until 94. So in 93, it's hard to say if that was true or not true. And probably because even if it is true or was true, I wouldn't have been directly involved in it. Let's talk a little bit about the next thing here. And I know you're going to get fired up about this, but I do want to have great, you touch on great. It. It's been a great day so far, but whatever. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, the phrase apparently letting vicious slide on steroid tests. Uh, I what? listen, I can, I can, I can extrapolate from that, that he's trying to hint that perhaps he failed some tests and you got swept it under the rug or a, perhaps you uh, just didn't test him. And I know you're going to fucking pop a blood vessel. Tell me what happened. Neither of those things happened again, which is so often the case with this piece of shit, Dave Meltzer. He's just makes stuff up. We've seen that now so often. And I know you're a friend of his and, and I, I try really hard not to, to get as upset about this stuff as I do. And really, there's no reason for me to at this point. We're talking about something that was going on in 1993. But unfortunately, the same kind of nonsense and bullshit happens today. And people read it, and now it gets spread on social media. And for some people, it becomes the truth. Just because one asshole, you know, sitting, you know, in a room in California decides he needs to fill up 10,000 words for his newsletter and starts making shit up. You know, there... Look, was our steroid policy the, the the beacon of, you know, performance enhancement drug analysis and testing? No, it wasn't. Neither was anybody else's, by the way, inclu including the U.S. Olympics. You know, it was a in 1993, <laughs> the the procedures, the protocols, and the ability to test for steroids were just really. Uh, were becoming developed and it was easy to get around steroid tests. Did we have a procedure in place? Sure. We did. Was it a check the box procedure? Meaning did we have a policy in place because we knew that we should and didn't want to, to have anybody accuse us of not even testing? Yes, we did. And we used legitimate testing laboratories and protocols. None of which, by the way, was up to anyone in WCW to administer. It was administered outside of WCW for the sole purpose of being able to be held up as something that we didn't have any control over, meaning we didn't want to be accused, like Meltzer just did or did back in 93, of manipulating the test or sweeping it under the rug. That's bullshit. It was never true. You could criticize the accuracy. You could criticize any number of things about the testing procedures that were in place in 1993 for Major League Baseball, for the NFL, for WCW, you name it. You can you can criticize it uh, or their policies with regard to, you know, performance enhancing uh, drug detection. But 
you can't say that someone at WCW, as Meltzer did, you know, swept it under the rug or just didn't test him. That wasn't true. Never was. Let's keep it moving here. Um, Arn Anderson, who had been suspended since the incident, will be reinstated on or around December 28th. It's been ironic since television has not taped months in advance to see Anderson doing interviews that were taped in September and October talking about being stabbed in the back. Davey Boy Smith was also fired this past week, reportedly to set an example about too many no-shows. Uh, despite what is being heavily rumored and reported, WCW is not getting out of the house show business Although there are only four non-TV taping house shows scheduled for January, but the schedule is a lot fuller come February and March. Reportedly, WCW management has finally acknowledged that one of the biggest problems that has absolutely destroyed their house show business is the consistent going into cities and not delivering the advertised product due to no shows. And apparently they are making Smith the well-paid example. Can you speak to that? Did Davey boy no show and, and you felt like, man, we've got to put our foot down. Again, that wouldn't have been my call at that particular time. That would, you know, I, I wasn't overseeing wrestling operations in, in 1993. And wrestling operations, the, the term would have included, you know, overseeing, managing talent contracts, dealing with talent type issues. And that wasn't my role in 1993. I'm not avoiding the question or trying to duck it or dodge it. Just got to put it into its proper context to answer it correctly. So number one, I wouldn't have been involved with it. Number two, it wasn't the idea of firing someone to make an example out of them. That's again, something that you hear, you know, in chat rooms and online and in dirt sheets and things like that. You don't fire somebody to set an example. If you're going to let somebody go well, or suspend somebody, you do it because they deserve it. Not because, well, eh, they may or may not deserve it, but I'm going to make an example out of them. If the guy had no-showed live events, and I'm, I'm not going to say anything too much about Davey Boy Smith. He's not here to defend himself, and I have too much respect for his family to do that, so I'm not going to do it. But for whatever reason that Davey Boy Smith may have missed house shows, that in and of itself would have been cause for termination or suspension, whatever the case was. Not because we wanted to make an example out of them, because according to Dave Meltzer, one of the reasons that the house show business was taking is because, you know, not providing main events or advertising main events, that kind of stupid horseshit. The house show business had been dead since 1992. I was the one that was trying to convince Turner Broadcasting to stop running house shows, not because we couldn't deliver the main events that were advertised, but because we had killed the business. We were lucky if we were drawing two and three and four hundred people at house shows, sometimes less. And it wasn't because we weren't delivering advertised made events. It was because nobody cared about the product. In fairness, I feel like we're splitting hairs on the whole uh, setting an example. Because the reality is, if you do have a lot of guys no showing, if you fire an underneath guy, like, uh, I don't know, a George South, because he no showed. Well, that doesn't get anybody's attention because, and I mean, absolutely no disrespect to our great friend of the show, George, it's George South. But if you cut a guy who's advertised near the top of the card, because he's no showed, doesn't that put everybody else on the card on notice? Like, oh shit, if they'll get rid of Davy boy for this, I better get my ass there on time. I, I would hope so, but there's a difference between something between letting someone go who is one of the higher paid, you know, members of the roster as Davy boy was at the time, either suspending him or letting him go. 
Um, yeah, yeah. You let someone go like that. If they deserve it, you let them go or you suspend them. And of course, it's going to have a, a bigger statement and, and get a lot more attention from everybody else on the roster. But that's not the reason you do it. Again, it's intent. The idea would be, regardless, if 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 someone's no-showing and there's no good reason for it, um, you let them go. Inherently, yes, it will make a bigger statement. But to suggest, and that's why we're splitting hairs here, to suggest, to imply, to infer that Davy Boy was let go in order to make that example, like that was the primary consideration of the process, is, you know, nonsense. It's just unqualified stupidity is all that is. Yes, of course, inherently. Yeah, if you fire somebody that nobody's really paying attention to anywhere, it doesn't appear to be that important to the overall television program or pay-per-view schedule, yeah, nobody really notices that. Yes, of course, if you let somebody go at the top, it makes a, a you know, gets a lot more tension, but that's not the reason you do it. It's a byproduct. Let's talk about, um, bulldog. He was originally supposed to face Rick rude at star K, but after this firing, the boss, the former big boss man in the WWF, uh, shows up here and makes an uh, unannounced debut on a Saturday night and pins Rick rude. And that sets up the match at Starcade. When you knew you had bulldog going away. Did you just start going through the Rolodex to see who was available or how did the deal with boss man come together? Um, again, I hate to keep saying this, but this is 93. So it, it wouldn't have, you know, the original context would not have taken place with me between me and, and boss man. Um, probably an Ole Anderson, dusty Rhodes, one or the other combination. Not really sure. Uh, is probably how that started, but I don't think they're, I don't think they were connected necessarily. Uh, it was more more of a situation where we knew Ray Trailer was available. He wanted to come in. Oh, by the way, we had to let go of Davey Boy Smith. So now that what, what do we do? Oh, let's create an angle here and let's use Boss Man. It, it was more um, coincidence than it was design. I'm let's sure. Talk, let's talk a little bit about Davey Boy again. Meltzer would say that he was the sub uh, the subject of uh, something of a burial that at least bordered on a cheap shot on TV on Saturday, quote, the story goes something like this. Smith negotiated a deal with Bill Watts for a certain amount of money, presumably a thousand dollars. Although I don't know this to be an accurate figure per match. And Smith was under the impression that on dates, he wasn't working for WCW. He was free to work independent shows, which is consistent with what Watts had said about the contracts he was signing people up for during that period. It also allowed for him to tour Japan since he already had a deal with giant Baba that he had negotiated with prior to coming into WCW provided he gave WCW two months notice before those tours. Smith also claimed that Watts agreed to pay him a higher amount per show for European match. Since Smith was going to be the company's top draw because of his existing popularity from the WWF exposure and because he was a British native, of course, Smith received the same amount. From the European tour as if the matches had been held in the U S and he complained about the money and it wound up with him saying he wouldn't be going to house shows unless he got what he felt was due to him for the European tours. Apparently nobody at WCW contacted him to sort all of this out with the claim being they didn't know his new phone number for the communication. And on November 30th, he taped the angle where he beat Rick rude to set up their planned match at Starcade, but then he messed the TV taping in Dalton and quit unless the European money was made good. 
And then as such, WCW fired him, citing the miss show as rationale. That led to the weird switcheroo with the big boss man. And allegedly WCW was mad that Davey boy had worked an indie show for his brother-in-law, Jim Neidhart down in Florida and wanted 60% of his pay from that show with Smith, believing his deal with Watts allowed him to work those indies and WCW's thinking at the time, according to Watts was it doesn't count. And since Watts isn't around WCW's office was saying, no, that's not the deal we had. There's no record of that. It's, it feels a little bit like who's on first here. Did you remember hearing Did any of that jog your memory about, Hey, in Europe, I need to bank more. Cause that does make, I mean, I have heard that from other people that that was Davey boy's belief. And it does make some logical sense that if he's the top guy over there, he should make more money. I, I, I don't know what to make of any of that. Honestly, I, 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 I don't even know what to say to that. Your, your question to me is, do I recall hearing any of that? The answer to that is no. Can I, you know, use my imagination and try to imagine how something like that could have happened you know, I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention to the way Bill Watts was writing contracts at the time. Right. I certainly wasn't involved in any of the discussions that he had with Davy Boy Smith. I don't know what was promised or suggested or inferred or implied in terms of what he could do and what he couldn't do and, and, and whether or not he was going to make more money in Europe or not. I, I, I can't speak to it because I wasn't involved with it. And unlike, you know people who make a living talking about shit they know nothing about. I'm not going to do that because I just, I wasn't there. I wasn't a part of it. So I, I can't really comment on, on it other than to answer your question. And that is to say, no, I'm, I didn't hear any of that. Could it, have, could it be true? Sure. It, it could be true. Um, there was a lot of, uh, dysfunctional shit going on while Bill Watts was there and it caused a lot of issues and I'm not saying it wasn't true. I'm just saying I wasn't aware of it and can't recall ever hearing of it. Well, it's fun that Ray Trailer gets the nod here because, uh, he, he was working shows for the WWF the week prior to showing up on Saturday night and then pops up here. So a cool little surprise. And of course, Bobby Heenan is going to leave the WWF at the beginning of December and Meltzer would immediately start reporting that he's going to be in, in January of 94. Can you talk to us about getting Bobby to come over? Yeah. I mean, Bobby was a relatively, uh, easy, uh, discussion negotiation i was getting more involved by this time and because announcers were considered really the television product as opposed to wrestling talent which came under wrestling operations so announcing talent was something that i was more involved with than i was you know the wrestling talent side of the equation and i was instrumental or critical to the, to the process in terms of getting Bobby to come over. That being said, it was fairly easy because Gene Oakland was already here. Bobby knew that he was leaving WWF. He didn't really have anywhere else to go with, uh, you know, what was going on at WCW at the time and our schedule and, you know, being close to Florida and all the, the other things that made it easy for Bobby. It was a pretty natural transition for him. I don't think if Gene, if Gene Oakland hadn't been there, I, I don't think we would have gotten Bobby to be honest. Talk to me a little bit about, um, Kurt Henning, because it's reported that his WWF deal ends around this time. And then Meltzer says not too terribly long after his contract expires, he's in the WCW offices and Wade Keller would report that you guys had given him an offer to do commentary on pay-per-views clash of the champions and TV. 
he doesn't wind up coming in here. Do you remember having discussions with Kurt in 1993? Uh, I mean, I remember the first discussion I had with Kurt, and it was significant because uh, Larry, the axe, had a came along with him and i had known larry from uh awa days so there was and i had known kurt also now i didn't know kurt you know while he, i mean when i say i knew him i knew him when he was in wwf but i didn't you know communicate with him and you know that type of thing but i knew i knew kurt from before i got into professional wrestling uh he grew up he went to the same high school as my wife we, we had a lot of the same you know mutual friends in in and around robinsdale and you know the areas that we all kind of hung out at so i was familiar with Kurt, obviously familiar with him from his AWA days, but I didn't really have a close relationship with him. And in our first meeting, um, and I don't know if it's the one that Wade is referring to here, but his first meeting, uh, he came in with Larry. You know, it was a, it was a great meeting. You know, I think Larry wanted to sit down and see where my head was at, or at least be in the room while Kurt was there discussing it to see where my head was at and just kind of take the temperature. But overall it was, it was a great meeting. The only thing I'll, you know, I have to question was, you know, bringing Kurt in to do commentary, I don't think was really, you know, unless I'm missing something and maybe we were going to bring him in for commentary for a short period of time and eventually put him in the ring. But I don't, you know, Kurt wasn't interested in coming to WCW solely to do commentary. He was, he wanted to work. Blake Keller would report while WCW personnel understandably cannot talk on the record about future personnel matters, talk within the industry is that more than ever, it seems Dusty Rhodes' days are numbered as Booker, though we've heard that story before. The leading candidate to replace Rhodes is Terry Funk, which might be one reason Funk refused to participate in the Survivor Series angle where he was unmasked or was supposed to be unmasked. It also seems likely that if and when Terry Funk is hired, he will be the WCW commissioner that Tony Schiavone has been talking about in recent weeks. If Terry Funk gets hired as Booker, which is still mere speculation at this point, one of his close allies remains Eddie Gilbert, who has a definite chance of returning to a prominent booking position in the industry. His return to the USWA this weekend seems to indicate he's still committed to being involved in pro wrestling after vowing several weeks ago that running for political office was in his future. Funk has shown definite interest in the booking position with WCW and has apparently become friends with Eric Bischoff over the last couple of months. Although some sources believe the opposite, that Funk would never enter WCW if Bischoff was working for the company. This is amazing that we're, we're, we don't really know what we're saying. No. And I mean, and that was so common. Look, I have a lot of respect for Wade. I think Wade is probably one of the more credible, uh, writers out there today covering sports entertainment, professional wrestling. Um, and even in, you know, you're reading something that he wrote back in 93. And even if you compare the, the way, you know, Wade Keller would commentate on rumors and, and suggestions and developments, you know, he makes it clear that, you know, I, you know, it's just a rumor. It's only speculation. Whereas, you know, his counterpart Meltzer would always state it as fact. Now, let me clear a few things up. Number one, Terry Funk was never going, to, to my knowledge, with, with regard to any conversation that I ever had with anybody in WCW, there was no time that Terry Funk was considered in terms of coming in to be a booker or to be head of creative or whatever you want to call it um, in WCW during my time there. That's, that's just a fact. And I'll speak to that because I was there. Now, 
could there have been a conversation, you know, amongst other people who weren't really involved in making any of those decisions? Of course there could have been. And that maybe is where that, you know, that rumor, you know, started in terms of, you know, Dusty just look, was it true back in 93 that Dusty's situation was tentative? Yeah, maybe, you know, Dusty, look, creative is a tough, tough job. And if you go back and, you know, read some of the horrible things that, that Melser, I'm not sick of even saying his name, that other guy would write about, you know, Dusty Rhodes and his creative abilities and the way he booked WCW. I mean, they blistered Dusty constantly. You know, the term Dusty Finish, you know, probably originated in a dirt sheet somewhere. Um, and it was a tough spot for Dusty to be in. And there were, and Dusty was an emotional guy. There were times when he would be so frustrated with things, you know, he wanted to pack up his shit and walk out the door. There were other times when internally, you know, there were challenges in dealing with Dusty. But Dusty, Dusty was on very solid ground in WCW. There was a no time where anybody in WCW that I was aware of said, no, nope, we got to get rid of Dusty. Now, Bill Watts, Ole Anderson, those guys, I'm going to speak for them. You have to interview them to figure that out. But in my case, you know, during my tenure there, you know, Dusty, Dusty was on solid ground the entire time. Did it mean that occasionally we had to cycle him out, give him a break, get, get a, a, a new head coach in there for, you know, a season or two? Sure. But that comes with the territory. I'm not arguing that. I mean, I think that's fair. Let's, uh, let's keep it going here. There's another rumor that I'm sure you're going to shoot down. Meltzer says, if they don't have enough titles, WCW is going to introduce a European heavyweight championship belt next year. Of course, we know that didn't happen, but the WWF would eventually introduce a European title in 1997. Did you think that perhaps, you know, there was money in this and, and maybe we do need to spend more time over there and even have a championship. Oh, this is vertigo inducing. It's really early in the morning for me to get bombarded with all this bullshit. So Dave said that WCW is going to do this, but they didn't do it. I I, I don't no, even know no, how to no, respond no, to he that. He didn't say they didn't do it. I'm saying WC, that was me saying that I said, of course, he didn't well, he said it. it was going to happen. And you pointed out the fact that it never did. Right. You just made my point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Good. Now you beat his ass for a while. Uh, let's talk about Japan. Wake Keller report. Eric Bischoff was in Japan over the last week, meeting with officials from new Japan, presumably looking to reestablish a working agreement with the promotion and perhaps learn a few, learn a few things about how new Japan has achieved the level of success it has. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, in 1993, what that relationship was like and what you were hoping to accomplish. We know you're going to do a lot of talent trade. Clearly these meetings are very successful. You guys hit it off. How critical and important was Sonny Ono to all of that, too? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, you've got to go back. And again, in 1993, this is at the end of the Bill Watts era, for whatever, or whatever you want to call it. Um, there had been some very tense discussions between WCW and New Japan based on commitments that Bill Watts had made and then 
according, you know, I'm going to be fair to Bill here. From what I heard from the New Japan side of the equation, Bill reneged on a lot of the things that he had promised to do. So the 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 working relationship, there, first of all, there was no working relationship at the time that I went over there. The only relationship that existed was a bad one as a result of previous dealings between Bill Watts and New Japan. So when I got to New Japan, now again, let me kind of go back up a little bit. Brad Ringens, who I knew from high school, Brad was a year older than I was, and he wrestled for a high school in Appleton, Minnesota. And I, I wrestled in uh, Minnetonka High School, not that any of it matters. But because of the way the, the regional wrestling tournaments were orchestrated in Minnesota, um, we ended up wrestling in a lot of the same regional tournaments. And that's how I first got to know Brad. Uh, Brad was the captain of his team, and there was a guy by the name of Gary Christensen, who was the captain of our team. He was a year older than I was. And Gary Christensen was a badass. I mean, he was he was a really, really great amateur wrestler, high school wrestler. Brad Reigns just wiped the mat with, with him. And we were all like, oh, my God, we didn't think that anybody could do that. And that's, you know, that's how I first got to know. I introduced myself to, to Brad, and, you know, we both liked to hunt, fish, and had a lot of mutual friends. Again, same thing. So I, I had known Brad since about 1972, and Brad had subsequently he used to he worked for Vern Gagne for a period of time and did a lot of Vern's training, you know, helped train a lot of great talent that came through the AWA. Uh, but Brad had moved on and was really the kind of uh, domestic U.S. liaison between New Japan Pro Wrestling and U.S. talent. So once I got the role or the position that I got into WCW, I reached out to Brad and said, hey, Brad, how, how can we fix this? How can we make this work? And Brad said, you know, you've, you've, got, to, you've got to do it in person. You know, you're not going to be able to do it over the phone. You, you know, you've got to understand, you know, what's happened, you know, and, and more importantly, the culture is different. You know, you've got, to make, you've got to make an attempt. Come over face to face, sit down, try to do it the right way. I didn't want to go, you know, obviously I don't speak Japanese. Um, I, I didn't want to go over there completely ill-equipped to, to communicate. And there were people in, in the New Japan office that did speak English. But, I, you know, I wanted somebody on my side that understood Japanese as well so that I could get the nuance of what was going on in the room. The other thing that I knew that I needed just from reading and you know, having talked to people that had done business in Japan outside of wrestling, the, the, the business culture is so different in Japan. Culture across the board is completely different, but in business in particular, uh, it, 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 it's very different than the United States. And I know this is going to sound even funnier, but I was considered to be too young to be in the position that I was in because in Japan, generally the people that are running companies are in their 60s and 70s. They're, they're very you know, senior people. There's a, there's a hierarchy um, that's very obvious in Japanese business. You don't see a lot of, outside of fashion and music, you don't see a lot of 35-year-old you know, executives, you know, senior executives, or 40 or 45-year-old senior executives. And I knew coming over there, because I was so young, because I was new to most of the people you know, at New Japan, other than obviously Brad Riggins. And I, I knew Masasai, you know, because I had worked with him in the AWA. Um, but other than a few of those relationships, um, they didn't know me. 
in, in particular, the, the most critical person in a lot of those meetings was a guy by the name of, uh, I can't remember his first name, but it was Mr. Baisho. Baisho was like the head of finance. He was the one that, you know, took it in, in the chin the hardest because of the, the previous business with WCW and Bill Watts and New Japan. So he was the most concerned about the financial arrangement. And I had never met him uh, prior to that. So I knew that bringing Sonny over there would do a couple things. Uh, number one, it would help me get a better feel for the energy in the room. I could, you know, meet with Sonny after the meeting or, you know, on a lunch break or you know, piss break or whatever and say, okay, how are things going in here? Because Sonny could read the room a little easier than I could. Uh, the other th thing that came in handy was Sonny was able to jump in and really help me express myself, uh, obviously a Japanese coming from Sonny, better than I was able to do it trying to stumble stumble my way through it, you know, in, in, in my native tongue. So it was it was very, uh, having Sonny there was very instrumental because it really helped me understand the culture and it obviously helped with communication. Well, we know it's going to be super successful. Uh, something else that was discussed, according to Wade Keller, that just fascinates me. He writes, WCW was negotiating with HBO to sell them monthly wrestling specials HBO is now looking elsewhere for a different promotion to supply monthly specials. Talk to me about HBO. This is fascinating. I, I, uh, man, that one never crossed my desk. I, I, again, this could have been one of those situations. There, you know, could there have possibly been a conversation between a couple executives? Yeah, maybe, but that was definitely, this is news to me. Let's put it that way. Wade clearly knew something that I didn't know at the time because this is news to me. HBO, um, other than boxing, I don't think they've ever been involved in anything that was live action. Let's uh, let's talk about Ted Turner. He uh, Wade Keller would write. Ted Turner spoke in confident terms to the WCW wrestlers in a much anticipated meeting this past Thursday, saying WCW has a bright future. He also answered questions from WCW employees including most of the contracted wrestlers. Turner said he has lost more money on the Hawks basketball team and Braves baseball team than on wrestling, and they're still around. Uh, thus, because he is also a wrestling fan, WCW will be around for a long time. And one wrestler said he sounded like he didn't care all that much about losing money, although it would obviously be would prefer to be making money. And Turner added, and this has been paraphrased to Wade, if you think we're not happy with your performances, remember you get your paychecks every week. So don't worry. And Turner mentioned future specials or promotions with his TNT network as a possibility. And of course, TNT is the home of NBA basketball games and NFL games besides the main lineup of older movies. And when one wrestler asked Ted about steroids, he supposedly said, I heard they make you sterile. Nothing's worth that. If you want to get bigger, buy a Jane fund, a workout tape or something to that effect. <laughs> Have you ever heard now, obviously Ted's gotten quite a bit older and he's not in the best of health, but if you go back, if you really want to entertain yourself, go back and look at some of Ted Turner's early interviews. You talk about a guy, I mean, you talk about a guy who's one of us. He, he's just, I, I really miss Ted and I could hear him saying those things. I don't recall if he said ever didn't say him. I, I was in the meeting. He may have said it word for word. It's hard to, I'm not going to say he, he did or didn't say anything. I can tell you based on what you read me from Wade Keller over at uh, pwtorch.com. A little bit of a plug there, Wade. You're welcome. Um, 
that sounds exactly like something Ted would say. It's just the way he spoke. You know, he, he was a, he, you know, when I say one of the boys, I don't mean one of the wrestling guys, you know, nobody in the locker room, but he was just one of, he's about as common as you can get when it comes to the way he communicated. And I could hear him saying those things. I really can. Amazing. But, but, but again, you have to understand, you, you know, look again, if you read anything about Ted Turner, if you read some of his, uh, an autobiography of Ted Turner, you learn anything about his history. Ted had a vision for WCW. It wasn't just because he was a wrestling fan. I don't, yes, he was a wrestling fan, but that's not why he had WCW. Ted Turner believed that wrestling was the type of programming that would draw a solid middle income type of an audience. And that's what Ted was building his brands around at that time, early on. You know, obviously, as he got bigger and Turner got bigger and, you know, TNT was going for more of the, the glossier kind of movie profiles. But TBS, you know, was built on Andy Mayberry, Braves baseball and WCW. That's what built TBS. And Ted Ted believed that as long as WCW was delivering eyeballs, it was serving its purpose. That doesn't mean he didn't. It's not like he didn't care if it made money. But the primary purpose of WCW was to drive eyeballs in a way that very few other programs that he could afford at the time did. But that got misinterpreted or, you know, it got misconstrued and, you know, people built out, Ted doesn't care if we lose money, we lose money, he doesn't care, we're never going to get fired. Come to work for WCW, you get a paycheck for life. That was my first day on the job. Larry Zabisco came up to me, first day on the job, we're somewhere in South Carolina, Florence, South Carolina, I think. Because I had worked with Larry in AWA, obviously. And Larry came up to me, we shook hands, he goes, hey, kid, just keep your head down. You'll have a job for life. And that was the prevailing, you know, kind of attitude around WCW. Not because it was necessarily true, but because people would hear Ted say things, hey, as long as you're getting a check, don't worry about it, you're good. Or we lose more money on baseball or, 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 or basketball, don't worry about it, you're good. That suggested to everyone that Ted just didn't care about money. But that wasn't true. Of course not. Let's talk about something that, uh, really jumps off the page before the pay-per-view Starcade would air. There are trade show magazines and even commercials running on multi-channel news, um, for super brawl, which is the next WCW pay-per-view. And it lists the main event as Ric Flair defending his world title against Vader in a thunder cage match. The ad slicks are off the cable company. They started to distribute them already. Um, the New York daily news even shows the ad for super brawl and mentions the snafu with the headline. You can bet on it saying the ad gave away that Flair was going to win the title four days later. And if you needed some extra holiday crash, bet the ranch on flair. If you could find someone to take the bet. TV gods have this information. It just feels like a monumental snafu, especially in this era or heads rolling as a result of this. No heads, unfortunately didn't roll enough in WCW. That was a huge fuck up. You know, that was a, and a, you know, it was a Sharon Sidello, Mike Weber, you know, disaster 
and 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 in fairness to them, you know, it was it was their responsibility. They oversaw that type of thing, so it it, it has to end up with those two. However, a lot of times we would be providing things because we we had to. Our pay per view providers, you know, whether it be Directv or Dish or anybody at that time, you know, they demanded that we had certain information to them 90 days, 120 days in advance. Well, once we give it to them and they decide to go out with it, it's kind of out of our hands. So I'm, I'm not saying that that's exactly what happened here. I can certainly see how that would have happened. And that was one of the disadvantages. And again, you got to go back 1993, you know, mid 90s, late 90s, even in the, into the early 2000s. Everybody was so dependent upon DirecTV and DISH to get your product out to the masses and pay-per-view that you had to play by their rules. And once you gave them the collaterals, meaning you know, all of the, the posters, the arts, the matchup, the title of the events, and all that kind of thing, that we were contractually obligated to provide to them within a certain time frame. Once we handed that over to them, it was kind of out of our control and out of Sharon Sedella's control and out of Weber's control. That doesn't mean that you know, they should have done a better job. They should have communicated better. Ultimately, it has to land on their desk as their responsibility for the for the screw up. But yeah, it was a huge disaster. Let's talk about what you were charging for. Starcade 1993. The show opens with a, a cool little tribute to Ric Flair, showing pictures of him as a kid and growing up, some highlights of his past matches, and then the highlights of Vader are shown. And Vader is just an absolute monster. Uh, at some point in the show, we also see Vader arrive to the building early and, uh, then start working out in the ring with Harley race. It's set up very much like a big fight feel a boxing pay-per-view almost. I love the presentation who deserves the credit for this guy by the name of Michael Shockett, uh, probably as much as anybody, um, probably have to give a tip of the hat to Sharon Sadello to a degree on that one as well. But really Michael Shock and Craig Leathers were probably more important than anybody in that process. Really, really well done. Uh, the first match though. Well, maybe not so much. Terry Taylor pins the equalizer in a dark match. It gets a dud. Uh, but the cool thing that we see near the top of the show here is Gene Okerlund interviewing Ric Flair at home with his wife and kids and. Then he jumps in the back of a limousine and rides to the arena. And we've seen a bit of a montage of this, uh, over the years. And, and we've even seen homages to this recently on AEW where, uh, Cody and Dustin would get off the plane. Cody would say goodbye to Dustin. And then Cody jumps in the back of a limo with Cody and they go off to the arena together. So this little moment where you're talking to Ric Flair here who is very much the decorated hometown hero, the elder statesman, the old dog, if you will, but he's done it at a high level. And now he's taking on this incredible, unstoppable, nasty monster. And he's almost worried about getting hurt against him. And he's expressing that to Gene, you know, Gene, they're just worried. It feels sort of Rocky four-ish. Is that the idea? It was the idea. And by the way, while I was, you know, try to give credit where credit is due to Michael Shockett and Sharon Sadello to a degree. The, the, the overall concept was a Dusty Rhodes concept that, I mean, Dusty had the vision. 
Michael and uh, Michael Shockett and, and Sharon Tadella would have been hands on trying to execute it and make sure it got produced properly and Craig Leathers as well. But the vision for that was really Dusty's Dusty's vision. I want to make sure I get that in there. Really, really great stuff. If you, if you're looking for something fun to watch right here during the holidays, I can't recommend this one enough. Go back and watch this. Uh, the build for this is just really phenomenal. Uh, was this taped the day of the day before? Do you recall? Uh, it would have been taped before. I don't know how many days before, but it would not have been taped the day of. Let's keep it rolling here. The first match on the actual pay-per-view, Paul Orndorff and Paul Roma. Pretty wonderful. Uh, get a win over two cold Scorpio and Marcus Bagwell, uh, 11 minutes, 45 seconds. The finish comes when the assassin gives Scorpio a loaded headbutt. Orndorf gets the pin. Meltzer would say first disappointing match on the show as Scorpio and Bagwell were nowhere near the level that reached on previous major shows or even normal television matches. Interesting, uh, couple of spots in this one as well. Star in three quarters. For whatever reason, this one just didn't mesh. You watched it this week for the first time in a long time. What do you think? Uh, I mean, two things. One, I would agree with Dave. It was just, it, it just didn't click. The, the, the match was disappointing. On the other hand, I, you know, Paul Roma, Paul Orndorff together for whatever reason, I, I just kind of liked it. Maybe it's because I, I like Paul and, and miss, you know, going back and watching Paul Orndorff matches because he, he was one of the best, one of my favorites, at least. Uh, but you know, I, I can't disagree. The match was lackluster Two cold Scorpio and, and Bagwell just, just didn't click. And who knows? He might've been out, you know, hitting that pipe. It's hard to tell. <laughs> <laughs> the cameras join Oakland and flair riding into the arena and the limousine again. And Flair's talking about the magnitude of the match he's going to be in here. And now we've got Shockmaster in a singles match with King Kong. They get one minute and 34 seconds. Body slam does the trick for Shockmaster. It gets a dud. And then we see the limo arriving at the arena with flair coming in. And I guess so far, this is, uh, we're two matches in and maybe the most underwhelming Starcade ever so far. Yeah. The Shockmaster, you know, that was a dusty thing. That was dusty's vision and idea. And, it just, yeah. Okay, let's move on. Well, in fairness, you know, everybody has a soft spot, and for better or worse, Dusty was looking out for family here. So the Shockmaster had a spot, and you know, we can we can beat up on it. But in the end, if you understand, uh, he's looking out for a family member. I don't know. I give him a little bit of a pass there. Uh, next up, we get Steve Regal retaining the world's television championship going as what was billed as 15 minutes as a draw here with Ricky, the dragon steamboat Meltzer was not impressed, called it another disappointment star in three quarters. As a rule, I've never really liked draws. I understand that draws are necessary, but when I do get a draw, I usually prefer it on TV, not a pay-per-view. What say you? Yeah, I don't disagree with you on that, but I, I also see the other side of the coin um sometimes i want to be careful how i say this because sometimes i just talk off the top of my head and when i hear myself back i go oh god you could have said that better made more sense look occasionally especially back in 93 94 95 you i i'll speak for myself i would do things 
like this as an example that no one would expect. And, and not that it was the best storytelling necessarily, not that it was the most satisfying finish, but if, if you watch any other form of competition, be it boxing or even to now, today MMA or you know, NFL, Major League Baseball, whatever it is you like to watch, whatever professional sport you want to watch, you don't always have clean endings, you know, finishes, whatever you want to call them. You know, sometimes you have ties. Some, I mean, you've got to mix it up a little bit in order for anything to feel believable. And sometimes you sacrifice a finish to a match. And maybe you're sacrificing it and you're willing to go to a draw because, A, you want to continue that story. Or, B, because you just want to do something that's not quite so predictable. And, you know, being unpredictable is important, but it doesn't always satisfy the audience initially. So, I, I you know, I don't know what the logic was of it at the time. That was a Dusty idea, not an Eric idea. And I, I can't speak to whatever Dusty's motivations or goals or vision was for that match or that finish at that time. But you just have to, you know, you got to realize when you're producing as much television as WCW was back in the day or WWF was back in the day, you know, you've got to mix it up a little bit. You can't always... You can't always do everything the same way. And, and that's not to say that you're not going to mix up finishes. You're not going to come up with surprise finishes and things like that. That's that you have to do. But occasionally, just to shake things up, it's nice to have a draw, especially if, if it's a story that may advance and you may, you know, use it as a platform to tell, you know, a bigger, broader story going forward. Next up, we've got uh, Tex Lazinger and Shanghai Pierce who are going to go on. Ooh, that's a oh man what a barn burner and they lose to cactus jack and max Payne. they go seven minutes and 48 seconds cactus jack pins pierce with a double arm ddt and Meltzer would say match was uneventful until jack tried a lucha libre move of being backdropped over the top rope by Payne and turning it into a plancha dive which looked like it nearly killed him star and a quarter you know cactus jack was notorious in this era for pulling crazy stunts, but this is maybe not the best match that he had. No, no, it wasn't. And yeah, you, know, you go back and you look at some of the stunts, some of the moves, some of the things that Cactus Jack McFoley did at the time. And it's a wonder that he could, he could still walk today. And that was one of the issues that, you know, that I had personally with Mick. Um, and one of the reasons why, you know, we ended up parting company is because WCW, you know, the company as a whole, not just me as an individual, but the company as a whole, the legal side of the company was really concerned that he was putting himself at risk. And he was also you know, potentially putting you know people in the audience at risk with some of the stuff that he did or he wanted to do, you know, coming off balconies and all the crazy stuff that he did was so inherently dangerous, not only to him, but to everybody. And that just, you know, Mick was determined you know, to, to be known for that style of a match and, and to be known for doing some of those crazy bumps for a guy, his size, it's, it, it was amazing then. And it's amazing now that he's able to be as mobile as he is. It really is remarkable, but this match was just sort of there for me. Uh, next up, we get Kyle Petty. who's a NASCAR driver. He's interviewed ringside by Gene and he's going to compare flair to his legendary father, of course, Richard Petty. And next up. We get Steve Austin and Dustin Rhodes and, uh, they get 13 minutes and 32 seconds for the first fall. I guess I should mention it's a two out of three falls match for the U S title. And Meltzer would say it's the second best match on the card. 
It was worked old style early. Uh, the blows were stiff. Everything looked solid. Rhodes gets DQ'd in the first fall in 13 minutes and 32 seconds when he whipped Austin into Rob Parker and Austin goes over the top rope. Meltzer would say that's a fairly cheap finish. And then Rhodes would uh, post Austin between falls and Austin would juice heavy. Then he gets the second fall by, uh, out of nowhere using the tights in one minute and 28 seconds. And he's announced as a new champ. Meltzer's critical of this decision saying, since when does the title change hands when the challenger wins a fall with a DQ finish? Good thing it's wrestling. So you can change storylines and rules at will. So yeah, two and three quarter stars. I love the performers in this one, but it is sort of weird that one of the falls is a DQ. What'd you think? Uh, I don't disagree. I, it, yeah. I mean, it, I didn't book it. I didn't lay out the finish. So I, you know, I wasn't involved firsthand, so I can't really speak to it directly, but as a fan and, and as somebody who's responsible for putting on television shows and pay-per-views, it was a questionable way to do it. No doubt about it, but the talent in the ring made up for it. Yeah. And it's cool to see uh, Steve Austin pick up a win and become your United States champ. Next up, we've got, uh, Rick rude. And the boss, they go nine minutes and eight seconds. Of course, this was originally supposed to be Rick Rude and Davy Boy Smith. Uh, Meltzer would say it's not nearly as good as their television match, but Rude got a, a good heel reaction coming out. So the people uh, are still somewhat into it. Uh, but this is for the international title. Meltzer says they shouldn't worry about a unification, they should just make this belt disappear. He gives it two stars. I liked the big boss man in the WWF, his first run. I don't think he did his best work for you guys in WCW. What'd you think of this one? Um, I, I, I was underwhelmed by it, uh, particularly, you know, when you have talent in there, like Rick rude, I, I was hoping to get probably a little bit more out of this one than we did. Um, I don't know. I don't know what else to say. I mean, it wasn't, it, it was underwhelming. Let's, let's just put it that way. Yeah. I think underwhelming is the right word. All right. I, good. I, I, we, I, at least we agree on that. I know that this pay-per-view so far, you're thinking, why is Connor recommending this? Stay with me, folks. It's going to get good. Next up. We've got sting teaming with road warrior Hawk to take on the nasty boys. So our baby faces get the DQ win in 29 minutes and 11 seconds. Holy smokes. That's the longest a long 29 time. minutes and 11 seconds in anybody's life. The rumor in innuendo is that Missy Hyatt and Hawk had been sort of seeing each other and break up right before this starcade. And she slaps the shit out of him in this match. I know Missy Hyatt's your favorite person to talk about. See that ring a bell. No, again, I'm not saying it didn't happen and it wasn't true. It's just not on my radar at the time. Uh, Meltzer would say they did the road warrior finish on knobs and sting, put him in the scorpion. And when Missy high interferes with the DQ, uh, he says, I'm in the minority on this, but I didn't think the match was that bad. Although the idea of them going that long for such a weak finish was awful. This may not have been the scheduled finish as they may have booked it to go the full 30 minutes, but Sags was injured and hospitalized after the card. And they may have done a quickie impromptu DQ finish that didn't work out. 
what do you remember about sags getting injured here in this two and a half star match? God, I hate to say this Conrad, but I, I just don't remember it. it. It must not have been that serious of an injury because I was pretty friendly with, with both uh, sags and knobs having known them both from my time in AWA. Uh, so it doesn't stand out to me. Uh, can't comment on it. Sorry. No, all good. Here's something you can comment on. Uh, these guys needed to take care of themselves. You know, if, if you were injured or hurt or not feeling well, I mean, you take too many risks in that ring to not take care of yourself. And I'm glad that he went to the hospital. I mean, this is before we really knew everything that we know now about, you know, concussions and, 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 and head trauma and things like that. And the nasty boys, man, they were rough and tumble brawlers for a long time. And if it was something where they needed to go to the hospital, they probably should have. No doubt about it. And, and again, you know, you pointed it out so correctly. What we know now about head trauma and, and concussions wasn't on anybody's radar at the time. And you go back and you look at Nasty Boy matches, you know, they just pounded the hell out of each other and got the, the hell pounded out of them. And the, the head shots that these guys took over a long period of their careers, it's, uh, it's staggering to think about today. And neither one of the, you know, neither Jerry or Brian are prone, you know, to go see a doctor or go to the hospital unless they absolutely had to. Well, look, Sags, Sags in particular, Sags is tough. I mean, they were both tough, you know, but Sags of the two, Sags was, Sags was super tough. Well, here's something you did think of your main event. Sid vicious is no more. Of course it was supposed to be Sid and Vader. But Sid's gone, so Vader needs an opponent, and we're in Charlotte, North Carolina, Ric Flair's hometown, so why not? On November 10th at the Clash of the Champions, we see the first Ric Flair-Vader match as Ric is challenging for the world title against Vader for the first time. They go nine and a half minutes, and after the ref bump, Vader does a superplex while standing on the top rope. Then he misses a moonsault. Flair gets on top and referee Randy Anderson does the swimming, struggling, walking with his hands. It looks like a three count, but isn't call for the bell and then rules Flair the winner by DQ fans think they've seen a pin. So it gets a huge pop because everyone thinks that Ric Flair has just done the, the incredible, the, un, the impossible and beaten this big, nasty Vader. Who's ran rough shot over WCW, but that's not the case, but because of the way the finish is done, of course, it plants seeds for the rematch. And at the end of November of 93, Rick is actually working a few house shows against Harley race. Who's Vader's manager at the time and ends up being Harley's final matches. I guess it's pretty appropriate that it's against Rick flair. And, uh, now we're here. Harley's going to be ringside to take on Vader. That's the big showdown, Charlotte, North Carolina capacity crowd. And Flair's going to get the win in 21 minutes and 11 seconds. It becomes the new world championship wrestling world champion. And it gets four and a half stars. Arguably one of the most talked about matches of Flair's career. Meltzer had this to say tremendous storyline and psychology. Pretty much everyone knew that Flair was going to win. So Vader just destroyed him early to the point that it raised serious doubt. Whenever Flair would get an advantage, Harley race would interfere and turn the tables. A Vader clothesline busted Flair's lip, mouth, and tongue and loosened some of his teeth, and he was bleeding badly the rest of the way. After kicking out of a superplex, 
Blair made a comeback, working on Vader's knee, wrapping it around the post, hitting him with a chair, and it turned into some great brawling outside the ring. After another Vader cutoff, he missed a splash and Flair got him in the figure four, but Vader made the ropes. Finally, Vader misses the big moonsault. Flair goes for the court the cover, but Vader kicks Flair off. And at the same moment, the 50 year old King Harley comes off the top rope with a diving headbutt and hits Vader. Flair tries a tackle, but he was the one who went down. And as Vader turns his back, Flair clips Vader and schoolboys him for the pin four and a half stars. And the uh, post-match is incredible. After the match, Vader tears up his locker room. He's screaming at Harley race and flair is, uh, unsuccessfully trying to hold back his tears, both steamboat and, and sting are congratulating him. And of course, Rick's family's there really a pretty special moment to get the backstage interview with him after the title win, sort of reminiscent of old starcades. It's a homecoming for flair. And this match just told a great story. I absolutely love it. It's top five favorite flair match for me. What'd you think watching it back? Amazing. You know, I think, you know, not only with, you know, and it's hard to say, you know, Rick's greatest match because Rick's had so many great matches, but going back and seeing this, I would think that Rick would have to put this right up there with at least some of his top three or four or five matches in his career. Not only because he, he had such a phenomenal match and the psychology was so good and the action was so good and it was also believable, uh, but I think you know Leon White Vader was also at the top of his game right here. Yeah, I mean it was you had two guys who, when properly motivated, and I'm not suggesting that either one of them weren't always motivated, but you put two guys in there in a big match like this, especially Rick, because, you know, we all know how emotional Rick is and how important it was. And by the way, you know, we, we kind of glossed over this. Rick had just gotten back to WCW, I think in July of 93, somewhere, somewhere in there. He had previously been in, in WWE or WWF at that point. So this is not too long after his, if I'm not mistaken, you can correct me or I'm sure our listeners will if I'm wrong, because I'm just going off memory here. But if I recall correctly, Rick had really just gotten back into WCW, and this was his first really big match. And to have that go down at Starcade, and to have Starcade in Charlotte, and then to be in there with Vader, who I think he had held on to the title for close to a year by this point. So it wasn't like Vader had only been the world heavyweight champion for a period, a short period of time. This was not some hot shot, even though it ended up being what it was because of the Sid Vicious situation, the build that WCW and I say WCW because it was really Dusty Rhodes and, and others. I didn't have anything to do with it, but WCW had put a ton, invested a ton in Vader and he was at the top of his game and to have it all to come together coincidentally or not in Charlotte uh, at Starcade for Rick. It was, it was amazing, and the emotion was real, and it showed. And it carried over into the audience, both live audience and, and the audience at home. Something even you may not know. This match is the only match that Ric Flair's parents ever saw him wrestle. Really? Yeah. But they never came to a match. They didn't really get it. They weren't really into it. Uh, but this is around Christmas time, and they came you know, to be with the fam for Christmas, and he convinced them to come check it out. So this is the only t- the only match that the Flair's parents ever saw. Well, they picked a good one. Yes, they did. What what <laughs> a story! What a match! Uh, Rick would write about it in his book. This is, by the way, this is his eleventh world title win. He says uh, in his book on December twenty seventh, nineteen ninety three, Vader was supposed to lose his WCW championship to Sid at Starcade, 
as I mentioned previously, aside from him and his imposing physique, Sid offered nothing to the business. He didn't want to learn how to perform or build up to execute an exciting match. The title change was supposed to take place at the 10th anniversary of Starcade, and the show was in my hometown of Charlotte. At this point, Sid was no longer with WCW and I was booked in the main event. You wouldn't believe how much animosity there was over this ravishing Rick Rude, Paul Orndorff, and some of the other guys that thought they deserved to be champion. And here was Rick Flair getting the title again, but despite our problems at other times, Dusty and Eric really did a great job of building up the match. As I've alluded to before, Dusty can be a genius. And there were periods when he had a vision that was second to none. I know there were other guys were kidding Leon backstage for having to lose the title to me. So when we got in the ring, we practically fought for real during parts of the match. When Leon suplexed me from the top rope, he protected me. When he jumped on me on the turnbuckles, he was 10 times easier on my body than a lot of the other guys. But when he punched me, it was legit. My ear was cauliflowered. My nose was swollen. He came at me with two fists at once, busting open my mouth. When we went to the floor, Leon said, I'm going to beat the fuck out of you. If you don't fight back, I told him you want it, buddy, you got it. And I just started tagging him. I'd been in fights like this before, but I didn't expect to have one at 45 years of age. Harley race wrote Leon was being an asshole. He was hitting <laughs> Flair with potatoes the whole time. There was no need for it at all. Then Flair wailed back at him. Both of Leon's eyes were swollen and he started to loosen up after that. Of course, Rick would say I was biting Vader and the fans loved it. As I covered him for a near fall, Harley climbed the ropes and then came careening down with one of his flying headbutts. I rolled out of the way and Vader took the hit. We got up and I began chopping him. He knocked me down and then turned to the crowd. And that's when I grabbed his ankle, tripped him and rolled on top for the pin. It was one of my finest moments in the ring. The people were so happy. And even when I went backstage, the fans were still screaming woo. I never really had the feeling that my parents liked wrestling. They told me all the time that they were proud of me, but I know they had no passion for the business. I was glad that they could be there with my kids that night and see how much I meant to people in the dressing room. I cut an interview with Beth and all my kids present. Reed started to wander out of camera range and with blood all over me, I steered him back into the shot. I had tears in my eyes as I list through a bloody mouth. I've been a very, very fortunate man. I just couldn't help it. The business was so real to me. I'd given everything I could in that match for myself and for the fans who'd grown up watching me and for my family. And the morning after I defeated Vader, my phone rang. It was Hulk Hogan. He was busy taking his kids to school, but he had one thing to tell me. You made me cry last night. You old bastard. Pretty phenomenal write up from Rick in his book about this as a result, really of that one match. The, this show in the wrestling observer reader poll got 66.7% thumbs up. Only 22% thumbs down, 11.3% thumbs in the middle. When it came time for the best match poll, every single voter voted for Flair Vader as the best match on the card. I can't recommend going back and watching this match enough, but it's not just the match, uh, not just in the, in the vacuum, you know, the match. I mean, the buildup, all the stuff at Flair's house, you know, the ride into the arena, Vader warming up in the arena before doors open. You know, Flair celebrating with his family afterwards, just as good as it gets, man. When wrestling is good, it's fucking great. And this was one of those moments. It is. Uh, and I, <clears throat> I want to make sure to say this before we, we close this one up, the, the elements, you know, the portions of the show that you're referring to, you know, the, the, the limo ride and the, the backstage stuff and the warming up and all of that, that was, that was 
all Dusty Rhodes. That was that's what Dusty loved to do. That's what Dusty was best at. It's setting that tone and creating that emotion. You can argue, you know, or discuss or debate or whatever you want to do, you know, the matchmaking or and or booking, whatever you want to call it. But when it came to putting together the visual, the drama, the emotion, the buildup, that feeling uh, of something really big happening, that's what that's what drove Dusty Rhodes. That's the part of that's the part of Dusty Rhodes that I remember the most working with him. He would he would go from being business and doing what he had to do to get through the day and all the things that you have to you know do throughout the day and you know to, to keep your business going. But when he shifted into that creative mode, where he was able to kind of sit alone and see a picture in his head, and then communicate that picture you know from what he saw in his head to a piece of paper, and then take it from paper and share it with people, that's when Dusty Rhodes was at his. I think his happiest and he was great at it. And what you saw on this pay-per-view and the elements that you're referring to here was 100% dusty roads. Well, kudos to Vader, kudos to Rick, kudos to Harley. And most of all, kudos to dusty for having the vision to put this together because man, it is a real treat. And what a great way to end the year here on 83 weeks. We're going out on a high note. One of the great moments in WCW history and. I can't believe it, man. Another year of 83 weeks is, uh, is under the bridge. We've, we've got all the hay in the barn. What's, what's new for 2020. What can we expect on 83 weeks here, Eric? I don't know. I think you and I are going to have to concoct some ideas. Now I'm going to swing up. We're, we're still down in Clearwater, Florida. And we're going to be here for another week or two. And then, uh, Mrs. B and I are going to drive up. We're going to gradually make our way back to Wyoming, but we're going to stop in Huntsville. Cause you and I got a little bit of business to, to discuss, but. I also want to discuss maybe tweaking the format a little bit, maybe adding a second show. Oh, Who knows? Well, I'm not mad at that. What are we thinking? Let's 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 open it up to the listeners. If we were to create a second show, what do the listeners want that show to be like? What's the format listeners would like to hear? Maybe talking about current stuff. Maybe I don't know analyzing stuff from the WWE network that I had nothing to do with. I don't know. Let's just open it up. I'm not mad at it. We're going to open it up next week. And, uh, after we had this great celebration of all things, great WCW with this wonderful main event next week, we're going to watch the first thunder and depress the hell out of Eric Bischoff. And the week after that sold out 1999. But then circle this on your calendar. This should be kind of fun. January 20th, Sting is going to debut on Raw. That's what we're covering. And wow. it happened in 2015. Eric's never seen this. So we're going to have Eric do a watch along for the franchise player of WCW debuting in a very modern WWE. That was January 19th, 2015. Can't wait to hear what sort of trouble we can get in with that one. If you haven't already hit the subscribe button, tell a friend about 83 weeks, leave us a five-star review. If you think we've earned it, be sure to check out all the cool shirts we've got over ericbischoff.com. And don't forget to, uh, stay tuned next Monday and every Monday only on Westwood one for 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. 
Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? Yeah, how many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.